number three of the way, it's called the way has a purpose. So we talked about the way having a beginning, the way having a promise, and the way now having a purpose. All right, so talking about the state of humanity, we remember back in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. He creates a garden. He creates man, gives man the imago Dei, the image of God, and he gives him the purpose And the purpose of man was to fill the earth and subdue it, to make life happen in the very same way that God makes life happen. So God gives this task to Adam and he says, basically, in essence, your job is to make human flourishing occur. Right? Well, now, after the fall... The state of humanity has become uh, corrupt. It's become filled with jealousy. It's been filled with anger and abuse. And there is conflict between relationships. And there's tension between man and woman. And there's a cosmic battle of good and evil going on. And this is not just specifically related to people who are like followers of Yahweh. This is a thing that touches humanity. This is a thing that touches everyone. When he created humanity, he meant for humanity to be with him. And he said to Adam, make human life flourish, fill the earth and subdue it. So fill the earth with a people who are in relationship, peace, connectedness, and wholeness with God. All right, so this falls apart. This curse that has come over the earth now as a result of that is touching everybody. We see brothers killing brothers. We see people gathering together and building a tower that reaches the heavens so that they can get to God, right? And then we see an empire form and this empire begins to amass power to itself it begins it begins to be able to do stuff and technologically advance and this empire is Egypt now here's what's going on with Egypt there's this tension inside all human hearts This tension that says, oh gosh, something is just not right in the world. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And we go to many and great lengths to undo this feeling of unrest, unpeace in our hearts that says, if I just do one more thing, have one more thing, things will be right in the world. And the way Egypt begins going about satisfying that heart craving is they said, instead of having this burden of pain on me, I'm going to put this burden of pain on other people. We are going to conquer. And they make Israel their slaves. And what they're doing is this 
oppression. They're oppressing and enslaving Israel and making them do their work because now work hurts. Now work is toil. Now work is exhausting. But if I can enslave a group of people and make them do my work for me, somehow like life doesn't seem as bad. Right? So Pharaoh the king of Egypt heading up this oppression, putting it on to Israel, the people that have come from this promise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel. He had 12 sons who became 12 tribes and they became a people called Israel. And now all of a sudden, Egypt in their power and in their might, they're oppressing Israel to get rid of that own heart tension, their own heart tension that says stuff isn't right with the world. And now we see a lot of people, we see a lot of people doing this, going about their own various ways of kind of satisfying that heart tension. And we see Egypt doing it and we see people in broken, abusive relationships doing it. Uh, We see people who are like alcoholics doing it, comforting that pain and masking it. And you kind of want to look at these people sometimes. Right? You kind of want to look at them like, oh, you're just, you're going about it the wrong way. You know, like, like, I, I can just see that you're going, you're diverging. And they kind of remind me of, like, people who wear Crocs. You know how people who wear Crocs, like, you just want to go up to these people wearing the Crocs, and they, for some reason, are thinking they're stylish, and you're like, hey, listen, no, 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 shh, shh, come here, come here. No, 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 shh, no, stop, and they're fighting you, and they're resisting you. No, 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 come here, shh, come here, no, let's sit down. Come here, shh. It's, it's, it's going to be okay. See this? That's a no. You just, you can't. I understand you. Do you see my eyes? My eyes are saying I understand you. I get where you're coming from, but you can't do that, okay? And they hopefully change their life for the better. These people wearing Crocs. (laughs) Well, anyways, this brings us to Exodus 3. So turn to Exodus 3, and we're going to see an encounter between Yahweh and Moses. As Yahweh calls Moses to himself, he summons him. So beginning in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. So verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take, off, take the sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he's reminding Moses of this promise that's been made generationally. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, meaning I know what Egypt is doing to my people. I see the oppression. And I have heard their cry because they have uh, their taskmaster. Master. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen uh, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So we know how this goes. God calls Moses. Moses encounters this burning bush. And he hears this voice that says, Take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses is like, Oh yeah, the sandals, right. Whips off his sandals real quick. And because he's coming to this awareness that the place where he's standing is holy ground. And it's not that all of a sudden this ground is holy. This ground has been holy. And Moses is just awakening to an awareness of that. And as he comes to this greater awareness of what's going on around him, where he is, where he is in proximity to this burning bush by which the Lord is speaking to him, he goes, oh, okay, I'm aware now. I've got to, I've got to take my sandals off. I've got to approach this with some different kind of reverence within me. And the Lord asked Moses, okay, so you're going to go to Pharaoh. And right off, Moses is like, okay, hold up. Not me. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, let my people go. Because I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen the oppression that's going on. I see Egypt taking out all their pain and anger and placing that onto Israel. Making Israel pay for their pain. And because I've heard their cry, I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to call them out of Egypt. And you're going to be the one that's going to go to Pharaoh and say, listen, this is how it's going to happen. 
And Moses is like, uh, yeah, he's, he's reluctant. He's skeptical. Who am I going to say sent me? Because I can't just waltz up into the king of Egypt and tell him to let go of all of these slaves. He says, tell them that I am sent you. So this hint that we start to get is that this place of oppression that Israel is in, this place of being dominated, being controlled, being enslaved, not doing what humanity was made to do, fill the earth and subdue it. They're captives. He says, I'm going to make a way out of that. And Moses being all reluctant-like, and I don't blame him. Do you guys remember on Looney Tunes, that one vulture who didn't want to fly? Yeah, he's like refusing to fly. Moses is reminding me of that vulture. He's like, oh, nope, 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 no. I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to fly. And you're looking at the vulture and you're like, but you're a bird and you have feathers and that's what you're made to do. You're made to fly. And he's like, oh, nope, 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 I ain't going to do it. And he really just doesn't want to fly. And then here you're looking at Moses and Moses says, nope, nope, nope. And you're like, this is what you're made to do. I know you're feeling pretty uncomfortable with it and afraid of this whole situation, but this is what you're created for. And if the God who is creator of everything is going to tell you to go to another created person because through you he's going to accomplish this will of making this way and forming this path out of captivity, out of death, out of slavery to a new place that is good and broad and flowing with milk and honey. If that's what you're made to do, then that's what you ought to do. Right? So reluctantly, Moses accepts and time goes on and we see these ten plagues unfold in Egypt, frogs and locusts, all the way building up to the climax of the final tenth plague, the firstborn of Israel being killed. And at that point, Pharaoh goes, okay, no, I can't, I can't handle this. I can't handle this pain of life now being pointed at me because I've taken all the pain that I experience in life and I've deflected it over to Israel and I don't have to deal with that problem anymore. I don't have to acknowledge that there's suffering in the world because I can make somebody else suffer for me. And all of a sudden when this suffering is brought onto Egypt and they are no longer in control of it, they kind of freak out and they're like, okay, I relent, I give up. These people can go. So Israel goes through this whole practice of the Passover. They follow the directions and then they make their way out of Egypt. They get up and they go. And there's there's like 600,000 men and that's not including women and children. And so they they take everything they can carry with them and they make their way out of Egypt. And they're following Moses, who is leading them toward this Red Sea. 
Now, this doesn't seem to be a problem until all of a sudden Pharaoh hates the fact that he just let his scapegoat go. He just let his source of easing his own heart pain go out the door. And at the time, it seemed like a good idea. But now that they're gone and he can't oppress them and feel better about himself, now all of a sudden he needs, he wants and he needs them back. So he gets his hosts, he gets his chariots, he gets his army, and he goes chasing after Israel. And Israel's on foot. They've got women and children, and they're trying to make their way. And the greatest army of the world is after them on their tail. So before Israel is this Red Sea. Behind Israel is this oppressive army who's enslaved them for all this time. And wants nothing better than to see their lives ended. And what does Israel do? It seems like there's no way out of this. It's curse in every direction. Death before them, death behind them. Let's see in chapter 14 of Exodus what does happen. Chapter 14 is the account of what happens as they cross the Red Sea. All right, start in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no, or sorry, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away? To die in the wilderness. So Israel turns on Moses, their leader, and with death facing them from every direction, they want to go back. They want to return. And their idea of return happens backwards. Backwards meaning it was way better in Egypt than being out here in the middle of nowhere about to die. It was better being in bondage and slavery because at least we weren't dead. And now question, what is Israel grasping at as they're saying that they want to go back to Egypt? They're grasping at what they think is life. They're reaching backwards for a past filled with slavery, and they say, that is life. Because at least we weren't dead. So that's the better of the two options. Keep reading. What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? They're questioning him more. Is not this what you said, uh, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to his people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. So Egypt questioning Moses, saying, Wasn't Egypt better? Because, yeah, it was oppressive and we were enslaved, but at least we had our lives. We should be back in Egypt. If we could undo this whole situation, we never would have left in the first place. And the only option that they see for grasping onto life and having what left they have of life is a return to the former. And what God is saying is, no, the way that I'm going to deliver you into life is forward. And they look forward and they say, but forward is the Red Sea. Forward is death. If we go into there, we have to die. And he goes, yep. But I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way for you to pass through death. It doesn't necessarily mean it'll be easy. But if you go through there, the way that I'm talking about, that will be where life is found on the other side of that. And that's the paradox at the center of all of this. We see oppression, death, ruling under Egypt. And we see that the option forward or the way that God provides, as we look at it, we go, okay, so option one was death. Option two is die a little more. Neither of those seems like life to me. And you're like, yeah, one and one doesn't equal three. I don't get it. Well, think about this. As the Lord splits the Red Sea and people begin to realize what's going on, all of a sudden their eyes are open to a possibility that never existed to them before. They see that stepping into the life that God is preparing for them means stepping into where the water is, stepping into the place of death. And as we step into that, a little bit of us dies. A little bit of us. The part of us that's wrapped up with sin. The part of us that says, I need to be my own king. I need to run my own life. I need to oppress others and be in control so that I can feel good about myself, just like Egypt. But as he's leading his people through the Red Sea, this transformation begins to happen. What they begin to see and what they begin to realize is to get to the other side 
Egypt has to be left in the water. The part of me that has Egypt in it has to be left there. And now I'm becoming this person because I'm on the way. The way that he has made through death, through the waters. I am on this way. And that says, I no longer have to oppress people and control people and manipulate my circumstances to convince myself or to trick myself into thinking it's okay, everything's all right. I no longer have to oppress people. I no longer have to be angry at people and bitter and controlling and unforgiving. I no longer have to be that. Instead, as I step into the water, every step I take, I'm leaving a little bit of Egypt behind. It's being pulled out of me. And people who are walking on this way and in this direction, all of a sudden they realize, wait a second, I don't need to run away from suffering. I don't need to run away from that feeling of hurt. I don't need to put my feeling of hurt onto other people. Instead, I can embrace the suffering because as I embrace it, part of Egypt dies in me. And although it's a little bit uncomfortable, on the other side of it, I stand and I'm still alive. And that part of Egypt is like crucified. And I think so many people spend so much of their time running away from suffering for the fear of how suffering might feel. That we never know that if we stand there looking suffering in the face and we name what it is we're afraid of, And instead of this bigger deal than it has to be taking place in our imagination and our mind blowing things out of proportions, now all of a sudden, death isn't so scary anymore. Death isn't scary anymore because death isn't the end. There's something on the other side of death So I can walk through that path, that way that is made through the Red Sea. And I can face suffering every step of the way. And although it's uncomfortable, I walk through it with more life. A step closer to life, to that fullness, to that great land that is flowing with milk and honey. All this is taking place in the Exodus. And there's another place where we see this way taking shape in the same manner. Doesn't this Exodus remind you a lot of baptism? Entering into the waters, 
something's going in and staying in, something brand new is coming out the other side. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, Behold, I make straight the way of the Lord. I'm preparing the way. Now he goes, I'm not the way. The guy who comes after me, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Sandals, again. Even his sandals are so beyond me. John the Baptist begins baptizing people, bringing them into the water. They're stepping into that water just like the Exodus. In fact, this baptism is like a picture of the new Exodus, the Exodus happening all over again. People are entering this water filled with Egypt filled with the desire to oppress and control and manipulate and, and make my own future and be my own king. And a person plus Egypt go into the water and just a person comes out of the water. New creation, something entirely new, something that echoes that old creation, something that is reminiscent of something former, something long ago. And we remember, man, what was, what was that creation all about? Well, that creation had design and it had beauty and it had purpose. Man was placed in this garden, formed in the image of God. God said, fill the earth and subdue it. Make human life happen. Be somebody who contributes to human flourishing. And you go, oh yeah. And as you're thinking creation, a new creation, there's echoes of Eden in this new creation. It's like a long distant memory that we almost forgot is reignited in this new person. And this new person is no longer living in a way that says, I am king, or I must oppress people, or control, or manipulate, or take out my own pain on somebody else. This new creation bears more pain than it inflicts. It will take pain upon itself for the sake of others in the name of love. That's the beginning of a new creation. The former creation in its undistorted state said this is the place where people are flourishing and life is happening and everybody is connected with each other, everybody is connected with God, there's no distance, there's no conflict, there's no separation Shalom is here, everything is whole, everything is right in the world so when we look at the exodus and when we look at the new exodus the baptism 
we got to ask our question, well, is it an escape? Or is it a return? An escape or a return? I think the answer lies in, does your Bible begin in Genesis 3 or Genesis 1? Because if your Bible begins in Genesis 3, then the Exodus, the baptism, the way that God is making in this world, the path that he is creating is all about getting rid of sin. Sin is bad and we must conquer it. Sin is the problem. And we've got to tell a whole story that undoes sin. It sounds like a compelling story. Sounds like you could really scare some people into heaven with that one, right? You tell them that and you tell them it's urgent, man. They might start believing you. But how about this? How about a Bible that doesn't start in Genesis 3, where we're escaping the world, escaping sin, escaping, 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 all this stuff? What about a story that starts in Genesis 1? Everything is right in the world. Everything is perfect. Everything is whole. There's no death. There's no corruption. There's no jealousy. There's no hurt, pain, anger, corruption, slavery. There's none of this. Everything is right. We're connected with God. We're in his presence nonstop. And he has a simple purpose for us. He wants us to do work. He wants us to work the ground. And he wants us to work in such a way that we make human life flourish. We make it happen. We fill the earth and subdue it. And the whole time, we're in loving, bonding, caring relationship with the Father that isn't hindered by anything. Well, if the story starts there, then the way is not our the way is not an escape, but rather the way is a return. But not a return in the way that the Israelites wanted to return to Egypt. Oh, let's go backwards. Backwards was so much better. Can we live life backwards? Maybe we could try, but it won't be very beneficial. The way of this new creation is forwards. Not a return to something that seemed to be better than our present circumstances, but a march forward that steps through the scary stuff and embraces the suffering and walks through the hardships and bears more pain than it inflicts on others. Because on the other side of that, there's life. Something dies. Part of me dies. 
But I didn't want that part to begin with. So not so much an escape as it is a return. A return to everything being whole. And again, God's people filled with this commission. On the other side of the Exodus, God gives a commission to his people. You are to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests who is representing what this kingdom is like to the world. A kingdom of priests that is living in such a way that is making life happen wherever it is. That is making humanity flourish. That is returning to this new creation with echoes of Eden. A return to life as it ought to be. It's like Willy Wonka. You know in Willy Wonka, when they go into the one room with the special wallpaper that's apparently edible or lickable or something, and he goes, listen, you just got to try it. The oranges taste like oranges, and the apples taste like apples, and the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. And you're like, okay. Now all of a sudden these people go up and with fervor they're licking the heck out of these walls. That's what people should see when they look at us. I know, make the connection, right? When people look at us, they should go, the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. In this person... Life is happening the way that life is supposed to happen. So if the schnozberries taste like schnozberries, it's exactly what it's supposed to be. And if a human like looks and tastes and smells and acts like how a human is supposed to be, it will be very appealing and compelling. People will look at that life and go, man, the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. That human is being a human. He's not faking. He's not manipulating. He's not controlling. He's not putting his pain onto other people. This person is bearing more pain than he inflicts. He loves people even when it hurts him. He serves people even when he loses. Because he is all about human flourishing. He is all about that original intended purpose. Fill the earth and subdue it. This person is living in such a way that says Jesus is the king. And it's radically different. In him, he is being humanity the way humanity was intended. Exodus, baptism, the new Exodus, this way that we've been talking about is a return to humanity, a return to us being whole, a return to this purpose, a return to life with God unhindered. Life as it ought to be.
pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you love us so much that you are preparing a way. God, show us how to step into that way. Even when fears come against us and threaten to overtake us. God, help us to grasp onto reality and to embrace the fact that you are good and you are for us and you are with us. God, help us to not live like Egypt is in charge of our life, but help us to live like you are in charge of our life. In your name, amen.